From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications, specialising in rural business and marketing design. Find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word to describe it. <laughs> From the Saddle. Today, my guest is Kylie Graham. Kylie is a very successful drought master breeder and horse breeder based in Tarum. Afternoon, Kylie. How are you? Thank you. That's good. Let's start at the beginning, Kylie. The Atkinson girls, you're one of four, and your dad was lucky enough to only have daughters, and you all decided that you would um, like to be on the land, and um, he was good enough to allow you to learn from him, and he was a very astute cattleman and horseman in his own right. But where did that start? Where did you grow up as kids, and where did you go to school, and what was the early days like for Kylie Atkinson back then? Yeah, okay. Well, it was it was a great childhood that we had, myself and my um, other three sisters, and you know, it's something I look back on now, and it's part of what's made you know made me who I am. You know, being surrounded by those people and that lifestyle, and it's pretty unique, and it's something that it's or it's almost rare these days. You know, the way we grew up, and I'm very blessed that that we had that guidance and the people around us and I wouldn't say we were pushed in any direction by our parents but we were definitely moulded and we had a great passion for the land and animals from what we'd grown up with so it was only natural that all of us took that progression and we, we, like you said there was there was no brothers and we were all treated as though we were dad's sons equally and there was no discrimination and um, that was just came naturally to us. So the Atkinson name is synonymous with North Queensland. So where where was home there then, and when did and where did you actually grow up? You know, you haven't always been in Tarum. So where was was home in the early days? Yeah, okay. We all grew up on Valley Lagoon Station, which was uh, north of Charters Towers, uh, near Greenvale, south of Mount Garnet, in that sort of northern area, and on the headwaters of the Burdekin and it was just a beautiful place to grow up and so it was an idyllic setting, the Valley of Lagoons. It was exactly the way the name said and we spent all of our childhood there and we went away. We did, you know, school of the air and distance ed, all of us, and then we went to school in Townsville. All I did, I did all my boarding school through Townsville at Cathedral School and then the natural progression for me was to end up, you know, drifting back towards home and the land because that was my lure, much to the disgrace of my teachers at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Only they knew now. (laughs) Probably no different to all of us. They all thought that those girls of us who wanted to go back to the land, our parents were probably wasting their money. But uh, that is one of the things that I guess now, as time goes by, your life and the life you chose is your business. It's no different to if you'd gone off to um, become a hairdresser and own a hairdressing salon. Um, that would have been your business. This is now your business and what you learned at school was part of getting you to where you are. Did you go straight home after school or did you go and work for someone else or it was just back to the Valley of Lagoons and, and onward and upward from there? I did go back home and I spent, uh, you know, a year back there, which was, you know, it was good timing for that, to reconnect with my family. and um, But then... You know, Dad was always big on going and learning from other people, so we did go away. <clears throat> All us girls did time working for other people and seeing different ways to do things. And 
I did some traveling, went over to the States and did quite a bit of traveling at different times, which I think was also something that um, my family, you know, that, that they thought that was important, you know, in the building of your character and something that they had done as well. So I was really grateful that my parents were both open-minded to sort of push us away and as well as, you know, there was always the opportunity to come back, but we did do our time away, you know, seeing different things and life goes in sort of different directions. And I ended up down at um, Elliston, which is down there in the Hunter Valley working for Kerry Packer. And I was breaking in down there. I was there for nearly five years. And that was, you know, it, it was part of what set me on the path also with my horses. You know, and then I ended up, after I'd done my time there, <clears throat> back at the Valley of Lagoons. And then we soon, soon after that, it was a family decision to sell. And we moved to the places where we are now, all us girls. But... Yeah, we were lucky enough to be able to go and see different parts of the world and the way people were, did things differently, which, you know, it's really important, I think, for young people, especially because we had a pretty isolated sort of a upbringing in a way because we were still isolated physically from people. But, um, but it was a big part in, you know, opening up my knowledge of different things, you know. And, yeah, I'm very grateful for the path I took. Mm. So in that, going to Elliston to work for Kerry Packer, did you ever meet him? I did a lot. Um, he was backwards and forwards quite a lot in those days. That was through the latter part of the 90s. I was there and in the heyday of the polo and, um, you know, it was an opportunity to mingle with people and see a, a whole other way of life that I was never experienced <laughs> at, up in far north Queensland, I could tell you. Um, and it was a fantastic thing to have done. You know, I've made so many lifelong friends and connections from my time there. And uh, it seemed like a bit of a left field thing to do at the time, but it, it had definitely has its place in where I am today. Yeah. So down there, were you breaking in his polo ponies or were you breaking in horses that were then sent? I mean, back in those days, he had a significant rural interest in, in the Territory and big places in the, in Western Queensland. Did you break in the horses that were then sent up there or was it just in, on his polo ponies you worked? Yeah, it was mainly the polo horses that we did and there was a, a major plan in place with his goals that Kerry Packer wanted to achieve um, and he was breeding lots of horses at that time and when I first went there, I didn't start off breaking in, I was helping the breaker and then I you know, soon progressed to doing breakers myself and then there ended up being a team of four of us that were doing the breaking when I left and I think we were breaking up to like 160 horses were getting broken in every year it was huge and they were all directed specifically to the polo and you know he had international interests in Argentina and, and back in England and so it was pretty international and it was a, a great thing to be part of and at one point um, KP, you know, congratulated me personally for the work that I'd done because we had to do a presentation for his international guests one time when there was a polo tournament there. He wanted to showcase all these young horses and he got us to do that. And he, you know, he came around and personally thanked us all and, and how proud he was of the job we'd done and the horses. And that's, you know, that was a pretty big um, thing to be proud of because he was he was genuine about it. And it was a really great thing to be part of. 
Yeah, he was renowned for being a tough but fair boss and, uh, you know, that would be something that you certainly could have taken away very proudly because he didn't hand out compliments easily. So Valley of Lagoons was sold and you moved to Taroom then, did you? Yeah, we did. Um, I did and I, I, well, I was married just after we sold the Valley of Lagoons. So, and then, um, so Todd Graham, my ex, we moved down there and yeah, we, we took over the management of Farnham at Tarum, um, which was, to that point, it was like, it was the fattening depot of Valley of Lagoons. Um, but then as I, you know, we took over management, I had a goal in mind with the breeding side of things. And so, yeah, that's where that started with the cattle. Um, I was lucky enough to, you know, be given the, the management of the Mangala stud, which was one of the foundation drought master studs and take that on and, been passionate about that and lucky enough to do it in that part of the world where it's you know it's amazing cattle country as everybody knows but it's been a really rewarding journey to get you know to where I am now yeah I mean again it's it's something that um, you can be very proud of and you know again your story is is a little different to lots of others in the regard that your father put that trust in your ability and your um, determination to be able to take that on and and do that. I mean, I know he had no sons, but there's lots of men in the rural industry who have daughters who decide the easiest way is to sell up and, you know, they'll go off and marry someone and that's their job to look after them. I think, you know, that is testimony to the faith that your father had in, in your ability to do the job and do it well, as you have done. The drought master industry and the drought master breed is a very successful breed in its own right and holds a very dear place in the heart of Atkinson's. Do you want to enlighten us all as to to the history of your family and relation to drought masters? Yeah, right. Well, it's I have a passionate connection with that, and um, it's influenced you know what I do as well. Um, but yeah, my grandfather. Moddy Atkinson was one of the founders of the breed, so that's my father's father. And um, so, you know, I, I saw that growing up as a kid, and through my father and the connection with my grandfather, and it was a, you know, what would you say, a passion that my grandfather saw through in his lifetime, and it it surpassed his lifetime, and then went into, you know, the subsequent generations, which is a pretty powerful thing, and so. It's, yeah, I mean, I'm proud of where the, the breeders come from and the foundations and probably more so the, the purpose behind the breed and the, the fact that you know, my grandfather saw a need for change in the industry and the type of cattle that were being bred at that time, which is, you know, I'm talking, you know, he was an 18-year-old boy when he, he witnessed the terrible drought of the early 1800s, uh, sorry, 1900s, and he could see that the Brahmin influence that was trickling in up in the north there just by accident really was something that was needed for that northern country and and he painstakingly spent the rest of his life dedicating you know himself to establishing a breed that's Australia's own it's one of two you know only two Australian owned breeds of cattle and it's definitely found its place now in in the cattle industry and um I'm really passionate about continuing that but at the same time I mean I, I love all good breeds of cattle horses whatever it is I appreciate anything that's of high quality but you know the drought master catalyst where my my passion lies 
Yeah, you've got a very successful, um, you know, stud that, you, as you've said, you put a lot of hard work and in, into it. Um, you hold a, a a bull sale, an annual bull sale that's commonly called the Mags Drought Master Sale. Um, what does the Mags stand for? Yeah, Mags stands for Moddy Atkinson Genetics Sale. So it was it was formed um, by the my family members that held the genetics of my grandfather, um, which was my sisters. Sherry Philp, Sherry and Huey Philp, and Gail and Max Shan. And at the early start, um, my cousins, Robbie and Donna Atkinson, well, Robbie's my cousin, and his family were involved in it as well because they were in the north with us. And so that was the origins of the sale. And it was in honour of my grandfather and the genetics that we'd all ended up with. And I think we're in our 18th year this year. And you know, we've become a very successful sale in the north. And so it's, yeah, it's really rewarding to be able to continue that. And and we're always striving for improvement. You know, we don't rest on our laurels as to where the breed and our studies as an individual, we're all trying to, we're on the same page about improving. And, And it's really, I love the fact that we can do it together as we do, you know, we run our business separately now, but we're doing it together as a family still. And it's, yeah, it's a pretty special thing to go up there and sell 100-plus bulls together um, each year and have that that connection. Yeah. Um, can, just as a matter of interest, can any genetics still be traced back to your granddad that go through that sale? Yes. Well, my, the female lineage on all our herds pretty much is a direct line back to the origins of the breed because we haven't ever really brought in any females. You know, if ever we've brought in genetics, it's coming from the male line, but even that been you know scattered and um so yeah definitely we've got strong origins with the breed and because i've got the mangala um stud which was the one that my grandfather was working on you know when he was developing the breed there's a really historic line there and when i took over that you know the mangala stud it had been run for sort of 30 plus years by our managers at mangala which was located at forest beach up at ingham and it was run in conjunction with the Valley of Lagoons and we did all the breeding at the valley and then, you know, we turned off cattle down on the coast where there was high rainfall and that was in my time. But to wind the clock back to when my grandfather was there, that was where he went to work on after he'd left um, Glen Ruth, which was up near Mount Garnet. He moved to Mungala in the, I don't know what it was, 50s, I think, and he was working more closely on the breed development there and so when I inherited that stud because it had been managed by someone else for a time there was things in there that I you know had to probably work on a bit or to you know make it fit what I needed more so so there was a fair bit of time of um, you know improvement and development went on and even though those great female genetics were there there was still you know I had to put a fair bit of effort into meeting some changing market Needs, I suppose you'd say. Yeah. Been an interesting journey. And an interesting journey it would have been for your father to come out of that North Queensland country where, you know, it is like you say, a bit better rainfall, bigger bigger areas and that, and come down into, you know, areas around Taroom where your land holdings aren't as big and the rainfall is probably sometimes not quite as reliable in the last few years anyway. Kylie, we've touched on your your breaking in horses for, for at Elliston. But in your own right, you're a very accomplished horsewoman with some beautiful horses. Does that 
stem from your time at the Valley of Lagoons and your dad was always into horses, but he was a racehorse man as well as, I guess, a horse person who rode horses as a means to an end. The horse riding and, and all of the knowledge that you've learned, was that learned as a child or is it something that you've picked up along the way as you've gone because you needed to to be able to operate your business? Well, yeah. I mean, of course, it starts in your childhood and and I was taught, you know, by my parents and mum was a really good horsewoman as well. And, and you know, back then we had a lot of Aboriginal help and there was people in my life that, you know, I learned to break in with the Aboriginal guys and it was a completely way, different way we do it now. But I had a really um, unique sort of start because I, the horses that I rode, we had to, you know, ride them for a job. So as time's gone on, I've had to learn to adapt to that. But, you know, I'm turning out horses now for people for competition and um, it's a lifetime learning, you know, learning horsemanship, as you know, as anything and is. And there's been lots of people along the way that have influenced what I do for sure. And but I've always gravitated, I suppose, to that type of horsemanship where it's, you know, it's, it's incorporating the horse's idea as much as my own. And, and I think a horse will learn and give you as much as they can if they're on your team and, and that they'll try extra hard for you if they respect and want to do things for you. So the type of horses that I've, you know, and the way that I, I train and deal with my horses now, it's really rewarding because as much as they're you know, giving you, you're giving them in return. And I love doing it because it's um, and the, the horse flesh I get to work with now. Uh, I, you know, I grew up riding some pretty average sort of animals early in my day, <laughs> and that, but that was part of the path that you know led me to understand what it took to help a difficult horse you know, be able to do what you want it to do. And, you know, at my time at Elliston there, <clears throat> those horses were bred for galloping for playing, you know, high-level polo. So their brains weren't exactly, you know, bred for learning. And it was interesting to have to learn how to train those horses and it's made me appreciate the minds of the horses that we get to deal with now. And so, yeah, it's been a whole different range of things that's led me to be the way I am. But, you know, I really get the thrill out of, having my horses enjoy what they're doing and, and getting as much out of it as me, really. Yeah, and anyone who watches you compete and ride know that that's can see that that's what is rewarding for you is, you know, the look of satisfaction on your face when the horse is done well is nearly better than when you win. So, you know, you're, you're very accomplished um, in, in your ability to ride and you've got two children who are very good riders themselves. Do they love it like you do? Yeah, okay, they do. They do love it like I do, and they they love it genuinely. Know that it's not been forced with them, and, and because I, I mean, just going back to you know the, the type of riding, the way I treat my horses, and the, the riding that I do, it probably hasn't put me in the winning circle as much as some other people. But I mean, I'm striving, probably you know, always striving towards that, but. The equal satisfaction that I get from, you know, what we were talking about before, about that knowing that you've done the right thing by the horse and you're getting, you know, and even though I'm not winning, you know, things, people recognise that and the horses, that um, probably means more to me. So I'm, I've, I've sort of passed that on to my kids and I think they really get that um, fundamental sort of enjoyment from the horses in that way too. Um, but I'd say they're going to be 
probably more keen competitors than me. They already are shaping up to be. <laughs> so in no time at all, I'll have to be beating them too, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> they might find other interests while they're at boarding school for a little while and you might get a little couple of little blue ribbons under your belt while they're away. <laughs> well, I've probably got a little window of opportunity there, but I, I don't think it'll be long because they're already stealing my horses. <laughs> um, Kylie, I, I guess your and certainly your father's dream would be that, that the kids come home and take over Farnham and continue on from, from what, well, you know, by that, by that stage, they'll be nearly fifth generation because I'm pretty sure your grandfather's father was in the, in the industry as well. Um, do you think there's some challenges that are going to face them that certainly, you know, you haven't yet seen or faced and are you preparing them for it will probably be a different world to what we live and work in here today in relation to the business side of it? You know, probably the house won't change and the lifestyle won't change, but certainly the business economics of it will change over the time. You're definitely right there. And, you know, it, it will be different in their lifetimes coming into the industry than it was for me. You know, um, back then, um, you know, the skills were handed down from generation to generation and I was lucky enough to be part of that and receive that and, and I'll do the same with my children but there's probably more of an emphasis now on, you know, the business side of things and being technically savvy and um, if you're going to be in especially the seed stock industry that we're in, you know, breeding stud cattle and horses, and run that successfully as a business, you've got to um, also be in mind that you know, there's all sorts of other facets of it now that are important that we didn't have to face back then. You know, promotion and advertising and all those sorts of things. Um, but the, the fundamentals behind the business, I think, will remain the same. But um, it is an ever-changing world. And I, I guess the next generation will adapt the way we have, you know, even in now in my lifetime. Um, the adaptions we've had to make, you know, we're, on, we're all sort of self-taught my generation of computers because oh, when I was at school, there was a, I think the last year I was there, there was a, a black screen with a flashing green dot on it that we <laughs> yeah, thought, oh, I can relate. used to learning about this. Well, <laughs> you know, so it's come a long way from there, the computer world, but um, it is just part of everything we do now. Um, mm. Do you find with the kids, you know, the, the issues that will face them will be things that, you know, our generation are on the cusp of and most of us like to dismiss it, the climate, environment, all of those things. Do the children even now say to you, yeah, mum, but that's probably not the best outcome because we really shouldn't be using chemicals on our cattle? Or do you think that there will be a pushback from that generation to go, we are running a business and we are here to make money and this is how it has to happen. Yeah, well, I think the smart way to deal with that sort of thing is that finding the balance between the two because, like I said, it's an ever-changing world with what, you know, regulations are put on us now as producers and, you know, animal welfare is forefront in everybody's mind and, and you know, we naturally do that anyway. So, yeah, I think that that's, the only way to sort of face that is to find that balance between running a business efficiently, but also, you know, it's not going to be too different to what the kids have learnt, you know, growing up here, because that's kind of what we do anyway. We, um, but it's hard to know where the future is going to take the beef industry, especially 
But I would like to think in the future that people will come to realise, especially, you know, the city folk and the people who don't really understand the, the runnings of an operation, what it takes to get meat on the table to people. You know, I'd like to think that people will understand in the future and, and, and be appreciative of that this industry more than they have in probably my lifetime. You know, even when I was younger, there was a more of a connection, you know, with the Everyone had a country cousin and did some time in the bush at some point, you know, but it, we seem to have lost that over this, yeah. well, you know, I think in, in late. Um, and I don't know whether that will so much return, but perhaps I would like to think that through, I don't know how, through whatever systems, but the, re- the, the reliance that the world does need on our primary production. I, I would like to think that. I mean, I mean sometimes it, it might take a crisis for people to realise that. Who knows? But it's something that um, is fundamental that everybody needs to eat. And protein, you know, that's the industry we're in, is a pretty important part of maintaining life. Yeah. And, you know, there's certainly... I guess, you know, you touched on it earlier that the kids need to, you know, they will learn more about promotion and, and stuff like that that will hopefully bridge that gap that not having a country cousin, you know, has left because I believe that that's going to be one of the bigger issues that we're going to face is that they are going to have this pushback by a generation that don't really understand it because they've had no direct contact in any form from it. That might be the one good thing that comes out of COVID. They realise the importance of food and where it came from. Yeah, and that's true. And I mean, we're such a, you know, an abundant country that we've, very few people have ever known you know, hunger and having to probably grown up a whole generation of not really appreciating where these things come from. And it's it's not their fault, but it's it's something that we could definitely have help with of bridging that gap between making people understand that. I think it's very important. And you're talking about the future of the kids. My daughter, Ali, she's in year 10 at the moment and, um, you know, they're pushing um, career paths and things like that. And she did an psychological assessment, I think, um, you know, helping her decide where she was going to be best suited. And, and of course, it came up that it was a, um, in the rural industry was one of the things. And uh, and I looked at the list of all of the career paths that were linked with that, and nowhere in there was there any mention of being a grazier or a jackaroo or a jillaroo, or it was all to do with... Um, Forestry um, mm. management <laughs> or wildlife, you know, it was. And I, 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 I was actually in mind to give the people a ring to see, ask them why those career paths aren't put on there because you know, that's um, that's an important direction that we should be directing our young people to if they are that way inclined. That's and right. even not, you know, so there's lots of people that end up in the bush that never started there just through. Mm. you know, different connections and, um, yeah, we should be really promoting things like that. And Yeah, um, you know, and I guess they're yeah. the sort of things that, you know, I find and I'm sure you do, disappointing. You and I sort of went to school at around about the same time and when you left your school in Townsville and said, I'm going home, they basically indicated that they'd your father had wasted his money and they'd wasted their time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a, a, not, a lot's, not a lot's changed really, has it, in that, you know, thirty odd years that Ali has indicated has an indication in in her psychological world that that the rural industry is where she wants to be, but the one thing that she probably really wants to be doesn't even rate as a career at the moment. 
But yeah, it wasn't on the list. Um, and and you know, and there's the likes of the agricultural colleges closing down, and you know these links for kids that aren't don't have a, a yeah. start in the bush to to make a connection with the bush that way. That there's another thing that's um, they ceased, and that's really sad. I think for mm. the industry because I think we should be really encouraging our young people and not frowning upon them for taking that direction because it's a second rate sort of occupation and. Yeah. In my eyes, in fact, it's it's one of the most important occupations that you can ever do is to feed people. That's um, right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've probably we've probably got a little way to go, and you know, hopefully, um, as things progress uh, a little bit more, it will become more obvious that food production, um, you know, and and probably on the list it didn't have you could be a grain farmer or a dairy farmer either. You know, yeah. it's it was in. No, forest, it wasn't. Yeah. yeah, in forestry and in in birds and in plants and in coral. Um, yeah, it's an interesting an interesting world that we live in. Kylie, do you have anything else you'd like to say? Um, okay, I really appreciate you know having um, sharing my story with with you and everybody. And if it's any, if I can encourage any young person to that wants to. Um, go in this direction or make something of themselves it seems challenging it's um there's ways of doing things if you're really passionate about getting to where you want to be and there's always you know you can find people that will help you and um I really get a lot out of doing that these days with the you know younger people and the people that come into my life and um yeah so I'm very grateful for what people have done for me and where I've got to be and and um happy to help and pass that on to others as I said earlier, Kylie is very successful at what she does. Um, she and her team have uh, held many successful cattle and horse sales over the years. Um, thanks again, Kylie, and we look forward to catching up with you again somewhere soon. My pleasure, Kay. From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications, specialising in rural business and marketing design. Find them on Facebook and Instagram.